Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, this afternoon, we turn in God's word to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, particularly verses 19 to 22, where Moses sets out God's specific command concerning the harvest of crops in Canaan, right at the end of the list on page 166 and 67 of your pew Bible. Now, as we read these commands, we can immediately ask ourselves, Well, all very well, but how are these commands connected to Luke 24, where Jesus explains that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to the disciples on the Emmaus Road all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, how is this command about crops pointing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brings us then still further, because we know also that Paul points out in his letter to the Corinthians that what happened to the Israelites specifically, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So there's something about these commands then that are meant to point us to Christ and are meant to be applied to us today. So how are we to treat these commands? Now we must be very careful in how we answer that question because to fail to understand the relationship in God's revelation in the Old Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ And through our union in the Lord Jesus, in our salvation, if we don't keep that clear, we can end up in a maze of our own making. We can end up with the prosperity gospel, that false gospel that looks at the material blessings of the Old Testament and tells us we should name and claim that today or that interprets any affliction that comes into the Christian's life as God's judgment, thus erasing the finished work of Christ's death on the cross. A false gospel that says that God uses affliction to punish us, rather to see it as the New Testament does, as all of Scripture does for the believer that God uses affliction in the life of believers like you and me to wean us from the affections of this life. So we need to take care in our study so that we might gain the richness that our Heavenly Father provides in the Scriptures for our nourishment. And because it is from His hand to us in Jesus Christ, we will also be challenged in our sanctification so that we might become more like our Savior. So this passage 
verses 19 through 22, is divided into three parts. The first is the affirmation of that truth that the land promised to Israel is God's covenant promise to Abraham being fulfilled. And that God's gift in his covenant, grace to Abraham's descendants who are rescued from slavery in Egypt. So first it affirms this great truth. The second is that the use of the land must continue to placard or publish God's grace among the nations. That is, the Israelites, in their use of the land, are to be a light to the Gentiles. And third, that God's ultimate purpose for the land did not rest in Israel's performance or their failure to perform, but rather as a school to prepare the Israelites to comprehend the amazing and glorious truth that the blessings of God's covenant grace in the land, in the temple, are all transferred to Jesus Christ. That is, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the land. So now the promises of God's blessing and God's dwelling are not located in a geographical place, but encompasses all the earth as the peoples and nations are joined in Christ through faith. So let's see how this passage works for us as we begin with the affirmation. You'll see that on the back of your bulletin. There is point one, God's land. We see this repeated in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget the sheaf, don't go back to get it. When you beat the olive tree, you don't go over it again. When you gather the grapes from your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. I command you to do this. Now I want you to notice two things about these verses. The first is how the gift of the land is a sure thing. There is no if about this. It's when you harvest. God is going to give them the land. It is sure. It is a covenant gift. Now, what is this gift? It's the land of Canaan itself that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. When God made his promise in covenant to Abraham, a specific land is mentioned that is foundational to the promise. It's the first thing that God says to Abraham in covenant in Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham's story begins. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give to you this land. And we can see throughout the first five books of Moses how the promise of God, that God himself will give the land to Abraham's children, is repeated over and over and over again. It's as if they're obsessed with this. It's the last words of Joseph. Do not leave me here in Egypt, but take me with you to the land of Canaan as God has promised. He's trusting in the promise. When Exodus begins, we hear how God remembers his covenant promise with the patriarchs. And so here's the cry of the Israelites to rescue them from Egypt 
and bring them to the land. And so for 19 chapters of Exodus, we come to the covenant of Sinai, the covenant of Moses with the specific commands in how Israel is to remain in the land of covenant promise. And so throughout all the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites failed to enter the land at first, but again we hear over and over again that God will open the land to them, that he will fight for them, and he will turn the land over to the Israelites. And so God does this. He delivers the land to them. We hear over and over and over again in the book of Joshua how the Lord gave into the hand of Israel one Canaanite kingdom after another. And so by the end of Joshua, we read how God fulfilled his promise of the particular land of Canaan to Israel. This is what Joshua 21.43 says. Listen to this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. It's done. And listen to Joshua 21.45 a little further on. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. What does that mean? It means that the unconditional promise of the land made in covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now fulfilled. There is nothing left concerning the promise of the gift of the land. But we know that the history of Israel does not end there, don't we? What still remains? What still remains is what we learned at Sinai. God exercises his ownership of the land. The Israelites are his tenants. So he says to them, here are my stipulations for your tenancy of my land. And so that covenant is reaffirmed at the end of the book of Joshua. And that scoops up our passage right here in Deuteronomy 24. So we have all of the laws of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy scooped up together and affirmed as Israel takes possession of the land God gave them. So that means, my dear friends, that the land is an indicator, a covenantal measuring gauge, as it were, of the individual Israelite to his king who has rescued him from Egypt and brought him into the land of promise. That's exactly how the covenant stipulations are reaffirmed at the end of Joshua. It says it like this in Joshua 23. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, that's about the land, you see, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land. You see, there it is. That the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. You see, God has crushed 
the serpents and the scorpions of the land. And he says, now keep it as you promised you would keep it. Now what's going on here? Well, to answer that question, we have to go a little further with our text. Because where we can see how the character of God himself is revealed in the way in which he exercises ownership of the land. God has shown his grace in providing the land to the Israelites. They never earned it. Deuteronomy goes out of its way to say that there was nothing about the Israelites themselves that made God choose them for his people. And so it is all by God's grace and gift that they have received his blessing. And that's exactly why he affirms what he does in verses 19, 20, and 21. And that comes next. Why are they meant to leave things behind in the fields? He says it three times over. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Three times. When you harvest, you will leave behind sufficient crop for them. Now, why these three classes of people? The covenant with Abraham. All the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. However, the sojourner, the widow, and the fatherless are cut off from the covenant promise. The sojourner is not of the nation of covenant promise by birth, yet a member of one of the nations of the earth. The fatherless, without inheritance in the covenant promise, they're an orphan, they have no family, yet a child of Abraham. The widow, without a family to return to, yet an inheritor of covenant blessing. So what God is doing here is he's commanding Israel to behave this way to demonstrate to the nations the power and the extent of his grace that all must share in God's grace even when they lack lineage or birth or status in the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even at this dawn, in God's saving purposes being revealed, we can see how he is meant to show how they are to share his grace amongst themselves and so show that grace to the fallen world. And we can see this, can't we, time and time again in the journey into the land and beyond. We can remember how grace was extended to Rahab of Jericho, who through faith, even a prostitute, even outside of the covenant blessing, in condemned Jericho itself, is brought in to the covenant promise. We see it unfold in the Old Testament, don't we? When we read of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 2, she's a widow. She's a sojourner who just happens to glean the sheaves of Boaz, the Israelite, who keeps this very promise of Deuteronomy 24. He's a relative and so rescues her out of potential economic slavery because she has no means of supporting herself and her mother-in-law. He redeems Ruth 
marries her. And Ruth, this stranger, now takes her place in the genealogy of King David and ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so over and over again within the history, we see God's grace and his providence revealed to the nations. The lesson here, of course, is that the God who redeemed you is entirely competent to sustain you. That is the principle. So now we must ask, what then is the nature of Israel's disobedience that Joshua indicates? Well, Deuteronomy 24 makes it clear that covenantal obedience is required across the entire scope of your life, on the farm as much as at the temple altar. But to live out this principle, that the God who redeemed you is entirely competent to sustain you, is not easy, is it? It's one thing to celebrate the victories of God in the past. It's another to trust in his ability to provide into the future. And it's still another to trust his ability to provide for you and your family with sustenance if you obey this command. I mean, after all, could you afford it? Weren't you entitled to extract the maximum yield from your fields or from your olive trees or from your vineyards without leaving valuable remainders for others? Won't it ruin your family if you went off providing for a foreigner without or a stranger within the nation of Israel? So we can see the two covenants at work. Abraham and Sinai together. God gives the land in covenant promise and grace, but then creates the tenancy stipulations because God is the ultimate owner. We're accountable to him. And we know what happens, don't we? Israel becomes like the other nations. It forgets Deuteronomy 24. It fails in its faithfulness. And that's precisely where the prophets take them in judgment. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. What place? The land, you see. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly exercise justice with one another, if you do not oppress, and here's the echo of 24, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You see? They're oppressed. Why? Because Deuteronomy 24, our scriptural principle, was ignored or rationalized away. So Jeremiah says you are not being a light to the nations. You are not exhibiting in your life the grace and promise that God has fulfilled in providing you the land. And so he condemns them. He says you cannot claim the gift and blessing of the land in this phrase, temple of the Lord, when you're trampling on the demands I've made of you in the relationship we have together. 
So that brings us to that important question. What happens to these commands of the land as far as we're concerned, we who are believers in the New Testament? Is it still binding on us? Well, we could think so quite literally. The prosperity gospel certainly teaches this. Is there a political implication for today? What about the modern state of Israel? What's going on there? Should we support them because the Bible says the land is theirs? Or no? To answer that, we must go to God's purpose that we find in our passage. In verse 19, the Lord may bless you in all the works of your hands, or you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Now notice how in verses 19 and 22, God looks back to that past redemption from Egypt in order to confirm the present gift and grace in the land. There was both a past to which they were to respond, God's redemption of Israel and Egypt, and a future for which they were preparing God's blessing to the nations. But they failed. The word of God has not failed. It's all under God's sovereign purpose because we had come to that one faithful Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfills what Israel failed to do. His perfect obedience in a righteous life according to the law. His willing submission to God's demand for a sacrificial death. But what are the promises connected with the land? Well, here's where the scripture is so fascinating and so reassuring to us as believers. Because when you read through the New Testament scriptures, you're struck by the fact that the land is almost completely absent from its pages. The land as a holy place given by God is gone. It was the holy land. It is no longer. Where is it gone? The land is the Lord Jesus Christ. When you search the New Testament, you find that all the descriptions of blessing, holiness, promise, gift, inheritance are never used of the territory inhabited by the Jewish people. They've all been transferred to Jesus Christ himself. The holiness of the place has been substituted for the holiness of a person. The promise of Jesus to be present wherever his people meet wonderfully universalizes God's promise to be present among his people in the land. Here's how a great hymn says it. Jesus, where'er your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Where'er they seek you, you are found and every place is hallowed ground. Now the whole earth is holy. What Jesus already knows by his indwelling of the believer by the Holy Spirit, he will claim as a reality in his second coming. So we can see is an extension of redemption and pouring out of God's gift beyond the land and the nation of Israel being fulfilled in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And whatever is annexed to his territory is holy. So we must see that all those promises in the Old Testament connected with the land are met in the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you will end up looking for things in the Old Testament that are already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What was promised of a specific land to be enjoyed by a specific people who trust in his rescue has been fulfilled in a specific person to be enjoyed by all people who trust in his rescue. That's why Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentile are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's language over and over again there is of covenant promise, heir to the covenant, partaker of the promise and blessing of the land. Where, though? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's why Paul goes on and says, also in Ephesians, remember, he says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And here's the reference to the land. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger, sojourner, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then the wonderful words, but now in Christ Jesus. You who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we could see then that there's a present political implication to this teaching, can't we? That there is no further land to promise Israel now. And there are those who would suggest otherwise. But to do so would be to abandon the integrity of the scriptures themselves. You see, Israel and the Gentile word are now one in the Jesus Christ himself. There is no further promise connected to the land. We see this so clearly in the letter to the Hebrews. We have these kinds of affirmations in Christ. The longest section, write this down, from chapter 3, verse 12... To chapter 4, verse 11, we have the land described as the rest into which we have entered through Christ. In a way which even Joshua did not achieve for Israel. In 4.14, we have Jesus as high priest. In 13.10, he is the altar. In 6.13-20, we have hope in the covenant made with Abraham. In 10, verse 9, we enter into the holy place. So we have the reality of a tabernacle and the temple. In 12.22, we come to Mount Zion. In 12.28, we have received a kingdom. How have we done this? It is all in Christ Jesus. It's so glorious how the gospel cannot be stopped 
that God's grace cannot be stopped as long as the message of Jesus, our Redeemer, covers the earth. We are wild vines grafted on the nation of Israel. The prophets have been fulfilled who talked of how even Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria will gather with the people of Israel and become the people of God. We can see this all in the gift in Christ Jesus. How this transfer of the blessing from the land to the Lord Jesus is such a wonderful encouragement because we have him as our Savior. So we are in Christ Jesus, just as it means to be in the land. A position, a relationship given by God in his grace. It's a position that includes all races. And so because it has been done by God, remains secure. But it also has a commitment to live in a fulfilling way that shows the world that this is all God's gift. So what does that mean? It affects our fellowship, doesn't it? There's a practical and costly sharing that goes on in the body of Christ. This does not mean fellowship we hear about in churches today as this weak and watery thing. We must look afresh at the sojourner the fatherless and the widow who shared in God's blessing in the land. And so those who come in Christ Jesus, we must have the same concern for them. It means we must have a robust and effective ministry of the diaconate in the local congregation to guarantee that no believer lacks. We can understand why in the scriptures, sinning against a brother... It's such a grave offense in Jesus Christ because it cuts them off from God's blessing in Christ Jesus. So we come to that question, don't we? Are we in the land? Will we remain in it? Will we remain in Christ, in our fellowship? The only way to answer that is to be certain of our trusting in Christ and his rescue. We look to the past. And have it affirmed as we move into the future. That's not to say it isn't risky. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. But it does mean that we must obey in faith. In the same way that we trusted him to save us. We trust him to provide for us. And so the fellowship of all souls Anglican Church becomes a light to the nations. For what we do here is all done to proclaim the grace and gift of our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. 
real people, new life.